Hello, this is Past Caring, a podcast from the Library and Archive at the Royal College of Nursing, the RCN. I'm Frances Reed, and I work on the RCN's public events and exhibitions. COVID has meant we've had to keep our doors shut, but you can still visit us virtually, where we've put lots of exhibitions and events online. Search for RCN Exhibitions and Events. As always, our aim is to shout loudly about the incredible and essential work that nurses do now and throughout the centuries. And so this is a podcast that uses history to understand how we think about health and care today. This episode is about women's health, and we're taking our 2018 exhibition, The Wandering Womb, as a starting point. One of my favourite projects, especially because it was shortlisted for a Museum and Heritage Award. Considering that more than 50% of the population are women, it might seem strange to think of women as a health category on its own, as if women's bodies are in need of special consideration, distinct from the rest of the human population. But throughout history, that's exactly how women's bodies have been seen, as strange, complicated and misunderstood as a kind of second sex. Our exhibition looked into myths and misinformation around how people have understood women's bodies and minds, which is why we chose The Wandering Womb as its title. It comes from the idea, originally from the ancient Greeks, that ailments and illnesses in women must be a result of having a womb. They believed the womb could travel around the body, wreaking havoc and causing anything from tiredness to choking and even sudden death. The ancient Greeks might have started it, But beliefs that women are inherently irrational, over-emotional, or perhaps have unexplained bodily pain or symptoms, all because of their uterus, remained for centuries. Many argue women's health is still very misunderstood. So in this episode of Past Caring, we're going to try and make sense of some of these misunderstandings and explore what role nursing has in challenging these long-held assumptions about women's bodies. We begin with Tracy Lauren. Tracy is professor at the University of Essex and historian of 20th century Britain. She's currently working on a Wellcome Trust funded research project with Dr. Daisy Paling, Dr. Kate Mahoney and doctoral student Hannah Froome. Tracy and her team have been using oral history interviews and materials like women's magazines to build a picture of women's health in the years between 1960 and 1990. When I spoke to Tracy, I asked her why this particular period of time was so significant for women's health and well-being. You have unparalleled changes in British women's lives at this time. So mass entry into the workforce, you have a resurgent feminist movement, a gay liberation movement. This is all against a backdrop of declining marriage and birth rates, rising divorce rates. You have new contraceptive and reproductive technologies like the pill and IVF. This whole shifting landscape of sex and relationships where, from a quite conservative morality in 1960, you see increasing numbers of people having premarital sex, a real emphasis on sexual liberation, then the kind of fear around the rise of HIV and so on, and lots of new family forms. I wondered what you have found was significantly different for these women compared to, say, their mothers or even their grandmothers in their 20s or 30s? We're interviewing women born between 1940 and 1970. 
So generally we're thinking about women who were coming to adulthood in the 60s and afterwards. Lots of these women had mothers or grandmothers who had grown up in the 1920s and 30s. And some of the things that people might think are different aren't so different. Often when I'm teaching students about this sort of area, they will say, oh, you know, so, so women started working in the post-war period. Actually, that's not true. Women have always worked. Working class women have always worked. But in that earlier time, there was an expectation that most women's lives would follow the same pattern. They would work until marriage, then they would stop and become full-time mothers. So there wasn't an expectation that women would have independent careers, and generally it was felt that they would be financially dependent on their husbands. Once women did get married, certainly in the 1920s and 30s, the only really 100% effective form of birth control was abstinence. That meant it was much more difficult to plan families, to space children and so on, and that has huge repercussions on the rest of somebody's life, not least in terms of how much money they have, how economically secure they feel. And of course, all of those expectations I've spoken about are firmly heterosexual. You're talking about a point in the interwar years when really the possibility of a happy and healthy life in a same-sex relationship wasn't even acknowledged. Now, the women we've spoken to, especially those born in the 1940s and 1950s, have also pointed to very particular differences between their own and their mother's or grandmother's lives. Quite often the first thing they talk about is the fact that their mother, for example, was a clever woman who was very sharp and very interested, but she had no real access to education. They'll also point to things like the lack of labour-saving devices. So fridges, hoovers, washing machines, all of these things make an enormous difference to how much time and energy somebody has. And in the interviews we've been conducting lately, um, women are really bringing up the fact that they've had access to the NHS throughout their lives, where their mothers and grandmothers didn't. You know, they had family members who had to put up with quite chronic conditions because they couldn't afford to see a doctor. And again, I think because there's been so much emphasis on the NHS as a fantastic national institution lately, women are really reflecting on how much that has affected their own ability to live happily. That's really interesting, isn't it, how that kind of cultural change in the health landscape as well has changed relationships in the home and, as you said, on these these day-to-day decisions that people are making. Yeah, I think... What you see broadly over you know, the period since 1960 is an increased ability to make meaningful decisions. That's true to different extents for different people. Certain groups in society remain less visible or remain subject to prejudice, to racism, for example. But by and large, there is a sense in which opportunities open out to women both through education and through things like the contraceptive pill, so they are able to plan their own sexual and reproductive lives. That can raise a whole host of other problems, other emotional difficulties, like um, negotiating when they want sex or not, um, if they get divorced, how to make blended families work. But it's a world of difference from how somebody who was 15 in 1960 might have imagined their life going. We talk a little bit about uh, women's magazines as source material for this research that you're doing why are they such a brilliant piece of material for understanding women and what might they tell us that actually is missed elsewhere in other types of material well I think we're living in an age of the decline of print journalism at the moment and so it can be quite difficult to think back and just realize how many women read these magazines at the end of the 1960s the two biggest selling mass market weekly women's magazines were woman or woman's own They had combined sales of nearly 5 million per issue. These magazines were read by women across all age groups, all social classes, 
and all areas of the UK. And so when you look at these magazines, you have direct access to what millions of women in the past were reading every single week. And they're a treasure trove of information about health and well-being. In the broadest sense, you have longer feature articles on you know, social issues like divorce, particularly. You have advertisements for over-the-counter remedies. You also have, of course, regular medical columns that are written by a doctor. You sometimes have a nurse column that deals specifically with questions about pregnancy, childbirth and parenting. And problem pages with agony aunts. So across those different columns, you have a full range of issues being dealt with from you know, fungal infections right up to the heights of emotional turmoil. Do you see differences in how doctors or maybe nurses or midwives and even men and women who are responding to these women writing in, do you see differences in how they, in what kind of advice that they give? Well, this changes quite a bit over time. So in the 1960s, the doctor columns, the doctor is always male. He's always referred to as, say, Dr Meredith, so with his surname. And unlike lots of formats in the magazines, this isn't a question and answer format. So it's not a reader putting forward a question that the doctor will then respond to. It tends to be a column where the doctor just explains in a very top-down way what a particular ailment means and how to treat it. And the doctor is always presented as right. You have around the same time nurse columns. They have a much friendlier tone and they have a mixture of question and answer formats and straightforward columns. They're dealing with medical matters, but they are quite friendly. Then, of course, you have the problem page where the agony aunt isn't supposed to have any professional qualifications at all. She's drawing very much on her sense of life experience and she deals entirely in emotions. Agony aunts will always direct readers towards the doctor or nurse column to find out about medical issues. Over time, the tone of magazines becomes much friendlier across all of these columns. There's a sense that Magazine editors want the columnists to communicate with readers on a less hierarchical basis. Still, by the 1990s, the doctors tend to be men, the nurses tend to be women. The advice that's being given changes really about 10 years behind social mores changing. So there's a sense in which it takes the morality of the magazine a bit longer than it does society to shift in a more liberal direction. But certainly by the 1990s, um, there's much more acceptance of premarital sex, much more direct advice on birth control and much less blaming of women for particular health issues. Can you tell me a little bit more about those oral histories? And you mentioned that you've got some um, some strong testimony about uh, the nursing experience and care that these women have had during quite traumatic times for their health and well-being. The... The way we ask the questions is not just about health and illness because we're trying to get this sense of well-being in the round. One of the questions we ask women who have had children, though, is about their experiences of pregnancy and childbirth. And this is often a moment in a woman's life where she really does come into contact with medical and health professionals to a much greater extent than at other points. So, you know, we talk to a lot of women who were brought up not really to go to the doctor very often to avoid it entirely unless they were you know, mm. dying on their feet. But then mm. when they become pregnant, they, they do have that contact. People have very, very varied stories, as varied as you would expect from a whole host of individuals. What's really struck me, though, is some of the times when people had traumatic incidents around birth, they speak very much about nurses as being the people who provided support. So one of our interviewees had a very traumatic 
experience where her baby had died in the womb and she felt very let down by her male doctor and by the male doctors at the hospital when she had to go in and have an induced labour. But she spoke about nurses coming and sitting with her through the night and that these nurses took it in shifts to come and check in on her and to hold her hand and you know told her that they had had miscarriages and she said that was one of the only things that really got her through one of the most terrible nights of her life and it was very powerful to have that testimony to a shared female experience yeah that's really interesting and I think yeah nursing as a predominantly female profession it's for these women it's having other women around them who might understand or empathise, sympathise and identify the areas that aren't medical that they might need support for. Yes, I mean, one of the things that has come up across the interviews is just generally the extent to which emotional well-being wasn't really on the radar. Yeah. So, you know, in the circumstance that I just spoke about and in some other incidents where people had some quite... You know, it would now seem to me quite traumatic medical experiences. There wasn't really any systematic follow-up, any sense of counselling or any direction to support organisations. And so a lot of the time, any friendliness or sense of shared experience, a sort of human contact rather than actual professional care, was the thing that really stuck in these women's minds. Tracy Lauren. Many of us who have spent time in hospital or perhaps with nurses in care homes, for example, know too well how important these more intangible nursing skills are when we or our family members are receiving care. But it's still striking to hear from Tracy just how significant this individual holistic care of women is, how it has lifelong impacts on women and how they recall these very difficult times in their lives particularly before the internet when information and support was harder to find. Two nurses that have done a huge amount of work to fill this gap in information are Debbie Holloway and Wendy Norton. Debbie is a gynaecology nurse consultant and Wendy was a clinical nurse specialist in fertility before becoming a senior lecturer in sexual health. When I spoke to them, I began by asking them what misunderstandings they still find themselves coming up against today. I think there's still a lot of taboo around just women feeling able to speak openly about things like um, period problems. And I mean, endometriosis is a, a key one, isn't it, there, where we know that diagnosis is often so delayed, sometimes between five and nine years, because patients are... Uh, really not sure what's normal and therefore don't know when to see GPs about potential abnormalities but also healthcare professionals don't always understand or have a, a good awareness of some of these conditions and that can mean that you know they also are delayed in referring people for investigation so I think there's still still a real big need to speak more openly about things that are natural processes and, and natural parts of our life cycle but it's been so hidden and so taboo for so long. We've not quite got out of those um, taboo circles in a way, have we? The more we talk about it, the more comfortable people all feel. But at the moment, we've still got that discomfort. Debbie, how about you? I think that things like periods, people don't use the right word for period and they're not aware of their bodies. Some of the medications we 
use to help with heavy periods like a morena which does make periods lighter or stop them and quite often I'm asked where the blood goes and does it back up inside you or it will make you fat because the blood hasn't come out so I think there's a lot of misconceptions around that and then a big one around pregnancy loss so miscarriages but also termination of pregnancy as well I'm not wanting to talk about that and keeping that quite private and I think a lot of women's health is around those very private sensitive areas that people don't really want to talk about so therefore people don't get education about them and like Wendy says endometriosis is that classic one where it's just period pain and don't worry about it but also menopause and I don't think we prepare people enough for the things mm. that happen to women's bodies throughout their life. Yeah I agree with Debbie I, th- I think we could do a lot more with young people in schools part of their relationship health and sex education. I was talking to some students the other day and we were talking about uh, vaginal infections and there's still a, a you know a lack of awareness about the fact that vaginal discharge is normal and it's part of your menstrual cycle and it changes because you're on contraception and it changes when you're going through the menopause but we still have women who are going out buying vaginal deodorants and vaginal soaps and things to mask what is actually a natural odour, you know, and and, and a natural flora that's in the vagina, but they're actually disrupting that by some of the things they're doing, again, because they don't realise that's normal. Does it surprise you that you see these issues? Yeah, it does. I mean, both me and Wendy have been doing this for rather a long time now, and it has changed slightly, but it is surprising that you still see these issues people very reluctant to be examined that don't get examined for years on end um people very reluctant to talk about their their bodies and what's happening and using all sorts of different words and not really knowing what bit of each body the function is for it but yes it is a surprise mm. and i and i guess it it is surprising because we feel we are more open probably than we were perhaps five ten years ago we think we're being more open but perhaps we're not talking about the right Things. So if you look at things like cervical screening, we know there's still a lot of women who aren't arriving for their cervical screening tests because they think it's a test for cancer and they don't want to know whether they've got cancer or not. They'd rather not know when, in fact, it's not a test for cancer. It's a test to check about cell changes that may turn into cancer in the future. So, you know, despite a lot of awareness and a lot of the campaigns that have been out and about about raising awareness of all sorts of health issues, they tend to be short-lived. Or they tend to be aimed completely in the wrong direction, such as those for continence products, um, particularly after childbirth and particularly with older women, you can get thinner pads. Rather than actually going and doing some pelvic floor exercises or having something done about it, you can just mop up the odour and the smell of wetting yourself, which is completely the wrong attitude to have. But yeah, so personal bugbear of mine. So then how for you uh, as nurses, what what is distinct about nursing that can help with these issues? Why is nursing so important in this relationship between the patient and the care that they're receiving and and getting them to ask for that support and present with these uh, symptoms or issues that they're having? Hopefully, I think that we can provide that safe environment. You know, we keep coming back to this, this ability to feel able to say what's really on their mind rather than, you know, only talking about the things that are okay to talk about. So Mm. hopefully we can create that safe, trusting, welcoming environment where we make women feel comfortable enough to tell us actually about their 
day-to-day concerns and and perhaps as women though obviously we you know we, we've got men in our nursing um, profession and we're very proud to have men as nurses but you know women helping women and understanding perhaps where some of those myths have come from and and trying to correct perhaps some of that information that people have been fed over the years. Coming from a nursing background as well, so working on a gynae ward, you see women at their most vulnerable and you spend time with them, whether it be pregnancy loss or loss of fertility or uh, post-operations and hysterectomies and things. So I think you see them then and you learn to talk to people about those things and that's a skill that the specialist nurses take from the gynae ward onwards into clinic when you're having consultations. And there's still the myth that nurses aren't as busy as doctors so we can we don't like to bother the doctor Mm. but we'll talk to the nurse about all sorts of different things so I think that's still there but definitely I think it's your nursing background that helps you talk to women about these things. Is it true that uh, most gynaecologists are men is that still the case? No not so much there are there are still some but um, there's a lot more women in it there's also a lot more women doing more part-time work in gynaecology and obstetrics and in gyne um there's still those that are doing like the robotic surgery for cancer but there are a lot more as well that are working in clinics doing more outpatient and office-based gynaecology but the the mix is changing Mm. thankfully and that brings me a little bit on actually to your nurse-led clinic debbie and i remember speaking to you a little bit and learning more about some of the procedures that are now done by nurses that previously would have been done by gynaecologists or obstetricians for example is that right yes so um a lot of stuff is done in outpatients there's a large cohort of nurse hystroscopists that do hystroscopy in outpatients nurse corposcopists have been around for a, a long while if you look at other specialities nurses are doing different things like cystoscopies as well and what are some of those things can you explain some of those terms so the hystroscopy is when you put a camera in and look inside the womb and then you can do diagnostic or you can remove polyps if they're in there or small fibroids corposcopy is for women that have had abnormal cervical screening to check cystoscopy is looking in the bladder for contraceptive devices as well so into uterine devices nurses do that in hospitals and nurses also do that in contraceptive clinics too contraceptive implants so these are all things that have developed as nursing has progressed and as nurses have looked at something and thought actually I could do that just as well or possibly better and particularly I find doing procedures on patients I've learned to do them when women are awake so talking to someone while you're doing a procedure is something that you do as a nurse all the time so you might be giving someone a bed bath you might be catheterizing or sorting out dressings and things and you talk to them and you see it as a therapeutic conversation and you carry that through into doing your procedures as well whereas sometimes the medical staff if they've trained to do it on someone who's asleep they may not have that skill that they can talk and Mm, do. How fascinating and really impactful for that person's memory of that experience that could have been pretty traumatic. Yes the only place that nurses can't do by law as you probably remember from the exhibition is um, anything to do with termination of pregnancy Mm, hopefully that will change eventually. Yeah still very medicalised. Yeah. Part of the Wandering Room project you'll both remember us going to a school science fair for key stage three kids (laughs) and um, we tasked the school kids with pinning the correct names onto a big poster of a giant vulva and we've got brilliant photographs that we have used repeatedly ever since. Debbie, you've also created a pin the morena on the uterus activity. I think that was one of yours. So that was getting people to think about where in the uterus a contraceptive sits. I don't think I got 100% on any of these activities. 
And also the other thing that we played was Ring Pessary Hoopla at the exhibition yep. launch event. And a few people didn't know what a pessary was and they had to throw them onto a speculum standing up on the floor and they didn't yeah. know what a speculum was either. Yep. So <laughs> the games were quite enlightening for people, including me. Debbie, why did you develop these games in the first place? For a Christmas party at work. <laughs> <laughs> so so we, had a, we had a Christmas party in the department and so that's where we got the pin, the morena and the uterus because we blindfold people and turn them round and see what happens. Um, <laughs> and obviously the surgeons were very bad at that. Um, and then the ring pessary hoopla, we had some out-of-date ring pessaries and some out-of-date speculums. So we thought, what can we do with this? <laughs> so we made. And now it's a brilliant educational resource. Yes, because it shows you what a speculum's like, and it shows you different sizes, and it shows you what the ring pessaries are like. We did have um, gynaecology bingo as well, but that's really not suitable for school children. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But I think those games, it just showed, as you said, Francis, people may not have known all the answers, mm. but they, if you make it fun, people were keen to take part and have yeah. a go. And, and, and you get the opportunity then, don't you, to, to tell people what the right answers mm. are, tell them why that's the right answer. I mean, at, at the school things, we had a lot of boys, we were questioning them on what they yeah, knew about did. periods yeah. and period pain. And, and I think if you, I think sometimes people are fearful because they think it's something think they should know it's like if you go to sexual health and it's about condom use people are very um, unlikely to ask you how to put on a condom because there's an assumption that as we become adults we should know these things you know mm. so people don't want to admit that perhaps they don't have all that information so I think it's about us not making assumptions and being a bit more proactive in offering that and finding different ways of doing it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think they were very good at pinning the labels on the vulva as well. They seemed to have a, quite a good grasp of what was going on, all of the school children that came through. They, were, they did. They, the they boys were... wanted to prove a point, I think, didn't they? Yes, that they knew where everything was. But it, <laughs> yeah. They were also quite interested in things like fibroids and dermoid cysts and things like that that mm. were going on in bodies, like the biology behind things as well. So. Yeah. Yeah, and we did have a lot of the students coming up asking for more information about getting into nursing, which is brilliant, and yeah. you know that's the best we can hope for, really. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a bit about uh, this year. So we've we've chatted a little bit about how women find it difficult to find healthcare and approach their nurses or their doctors sometimes with some particular issues. Have you seen this worsen during the pandemic? Has it been exacerbated by so many inequalities that we have seen this year? Uh, Yes, it has definitely worsened. At the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of our services were just shut, um, particularly fertility and the cystic conception services were shut for a while. We carried on doing the work for gynae cancers and carried on doing work for urgent patients, then started to convert a lot of stuff over to telephone, which works well for some stuff in gynae, but not others, as you can imagine. You can't ask someone to show you something on an iPhone like you can if you've got dermatology or a lump or something. But yes, I think there has been a lot of problems accessing some services, which hopefully will get better. But I know that a lot of patients have a long wait for operations particularly. And the age at which you can access fertility has had to be changed slightly to take account for the fact that people were referred before their 40th birthdays at the start of the pandemic and may not have been seen now. Yeah, and I think there's been some confusion about people not 
actually knowing what kind of services are still open, though we've been trying to keep the, the more urgent services available. You know, women perhaps not responding to their cervical yeah. screening letters because they think it's not actually, there's not provision for that at the moment and, and we really need them to come forward still. So I think people are have been a little bit fearful about going to surgeries, haven't they, for what they see as unnecessary procedures when in fact we really want them to continue to be accessing our services. Yeah. I've got a final question. You both authored a paper not that long ago with the RCN on menstrual well-being, and it gave an amazing overview of both the physical and the emotional health of people when dealing with periods and and bleeding. And you included a specific section for trans, non-binary and gender fluid people for whom experiencing a menstrual cycle has its own often very distressing challenges. And you outline specific ways that nursing care can help. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? Because to me, they're skills that seem so unique and specialist to a nursing role. Debbie, should we start with you? Um, It's about treating everyone as an individual and about knowing what the problems are going to be. So, yes, you're right. If you're transitioning or you don't identify as being a woman to have a period every month is a visual and psychological and physical and emotional reminder of what's happening in your body. So that does need some careful looking at. But equally, if if you are a woman and you identify as being a woman, if you're having periods that are lasting for 12 to 14 days a month, it brings about its same emotional, psychological, physical problems. So I think part of the key is just treating everyone as an individual and looking at everyone's experience and then trying to work out what everyone's end point is and what they want and then giving the solutions or the tools that that would get them there. And it may not be perfect for everyone, but you can normally work out a mixture between what will help and what has the least side effects and what's acceptable to women. And it, it goes for how women identify but it also goes for some religions as well where it's taboo to be menstruating and and if you've got heavy periods or you've got irregular periods that causes its own problem with prayer and church and things so it's just about individuality really. Yeah I'd I'd agree entirely I I think it's about just recognising you need to take an individual approach and not making assumptions, I guess. You know, sometimes, because we're women as well ourselves, when it comes to women's health, you may think you understand how this condition may be impacting on people's lives, but we don't know because we're all different. And we all have, as Debbie said, we, we're in a different culture, we follow different religious beliefs, we have different day-to-day roles that we undertake. So I think it's about just asking that person how it impacts on their life and letting that answer guide where your care pathways go. Debbie Holloway and Wendy Norton. You're listening to Past Caring, a podcast from the Royal College of Nursing Library and Archive. If you want to find out more about the RCN's Fair Pay for Nursing campaign, visit rcn.org.uk or follow the hashtag Fair Pay for Nursing on Twitter. In the history of women's health, one name really stands out. Mary Stopes was the early 20th century pioneer of family planning, whose books and clinics had a huge impact in enabling women to control the size and spacing of their families. She wrote a guide to sex for women called Married Love, which we included in our Wandering Room exhibition. Her influence and legacy have been huge, but the reasons why Mary Stopes was so passionate about birth control are not something to celebrate. 
a heroine in the fight for women's emancipation, yes, but her motivations reveal a much more troubling history. Sabadra Das is a curator and historian, and I asked what story we should be telling about Mary Stopes. The thing that you should know about her is that she was a pioneer in the UK for birth control. So one of the main principles that she stood for was that women should have reproductive rights and rights over their own bodies. And as such, if people have heard her name, they'll know her as this this feminist hero who was working really hard to make sure that women could give birth when they wanted to, could manage the size of their families. Yeah, a bit of a feminist icon, really. We know her for her role in healthcare and women's healthcare, but she wasn't a doctor or a nurse, was she? She was actually a botanist. Correct, yeah. Um, I think some people have said that she was probably one of the most influential paleobotanists of the early 20th century. Her academic career is extraordinary. So she's the youngest person to be awarded a role which is called Doctor of Science, which is kind of even one on from a PhD. So when she achieves that, she's the youngest person ever to have achieved that in the UK. And then she goes on to be the first female academic or, you know, lecturer on staff at the University of Manchester. This was her scientific background. Yeah, none of it is to do with medicine, anatomy, physiology. When it came to carboniferous coal, yeah, she's one of the expert people who knows what she's talking about. When it came to the human body, probably really a little less so. So with that track record, it's kind of clear why she is known as this pioneer. And even if people don't know much about her, they will um, probably recognise her name. But there's a part of her that a lot of people actually, I don't think, know very much about. And it fed into her work and it drove her ambitions. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. So the, the main driving force behind why Stopes wanted women to be able to have control over their own bodies is because for her, birth control was one of the main pillars of eugenics. So she herself was an avid eugenicist from, from quite a young age. Eugenics is the idea, based on some scientific principles, that it's possible to breed better people. And for Stopes, this was the goal, right? The, the idea was that within British society, there were people of higher and lower quality. As far as she was concerned, that would be equating to class. And she's living in a time period where, you know, there's quite an explosion of population among the working classes coming out of the Industrial Revolution. There's a growing urban class of people. And as a middle class woman, she's concerned about this. At the turn of the 20th century, eugenicists, mostly male eugenicists, their idea about how to improve the British race from a technical point of view was that middle class women like Stopes should be having more babies in order to counteract the increasing population of working class people. And for Stokes, this is a huge threat because at the time, childbirth, you know, it's, it's as dangerous as going into war. A woman giving birth to a child at this point in history has as much of a risk of dying as a soldier on a battlefield. So she is part of a group of women or a, or a particular part of a social movement of middle class women who said, you know what, actually, maybe really the thing to do is to restrict the working class people from having children. And so that's her primary motivator and it's, it's what guides her in terms of the work that she did in terms of setting up and advocating for birth control. As well as preventing working class women from having children or too many children, does she also support middle class women to have healthy births and healthy children? Yes, absolutely. In 1918, she publishes two books. The first of those is probably the most famous called Married Love, which is ostensibly a sex manual, but it's, it's also one of the first published works to refer to birth control. 
And then the follow-up to that is wise parenthood, which is, uh, it's similar, but there's ideas to do with eugenics involved in that, which is to do, you know, with healthy motherhood and the idea that a healthy mother is a eugenic mother for the state. And so she knows that the people who are reading those books are middle-class women. The idea was to then be able to expand knowledge about sex, knowledge about birth control and access to birth control across society. So, yeah, she's not she's not discriminating in terms of, of how the, the birth control is being distributed. It's just the, mm. the goal that she has in mind is a bit more specific. So what was eugenics exactly? And was it a common belief system for people at that time? Yes, it absolutely was. So I think when most people hear the word eugenics, they immediately think about the Nazis and World War II and horrible, atrocious acts like the Holocaust, which was like the, the systematic wiping out of, of whole populations of people. But really, in the advance of that, the Nazis didn't pull their ideas out of the air. They pulled them out of what was really quite well-established science in Britain, in the United States, and in Europe. Eugenics is, is the idea that scientific data gathering about humans and the quality of you know human physical capability and also physical appearance that that kind of information being gathered should feed into the government who should then come up with programmes for improving the quality of the race. So really, before the Second World War, eugenics is an international, enormous socio-political economic movement. So we're talking about people on the left and on the right. So Winston Churchill, for example, was a eugenicist. And he tried but failed to implement legislation that was to do with involuntary sterilisation in the UK. Who else? So like famous writers like H.G. Wells, uh, George Bernard Shaw. Really pick a famous name from the first half of the 20th century. Odds are they were a eugenicist. So you mentioned earlier her book, her 1918 book, Married Love. And something that I've been thinking about recently is a conversation that we had in 2018, I think, when the Wandering Womb exhibition was launched. And we had Married Love in the display. And it had a very short caption alongside it, the date, the title. We had a line about Mary Stopes as a pioneer and a little bit of explanation about how this is her text about happiness in marriage through sexual satisfaction, pioneer of birth control. And then we had a conversation where you said she was actually also a eugenicist. And that was neglected on the caption Mm -hmm. that we wrote. Um, And it was an excellent point. And it made me think a lot, and I think a lot of museum professionals are thinking about this, is what we choose to include when we do have a very short amount of space or time to tell a history. And the book was liberating for many women, and it was shocking at the time, but this piece of information is often neglected. So when we're looking at history and presenting it, how do we reconcile these conflicting aspects of a historical figure? Well, first of all, I mean, credit to you for being open to this discussion. I think really the step one is acknowledging that there's a problem and then trying to find ways to fix it. So, you know, I'm encouraged by the idea that, you know, that we can we can start to change the stories we tell. I think the the trick of it is almost there in the language and the way that you phrase that, so the conflicting aspects of a person. You know, if Mary Stokes were on the line today, you know, and we were talking to her, I don't think she would see any conflict at all in, in her mission. These two things, mm. as far as she was concerned, was exactly the same thing, that the health of individuals fits into a wider picture of the health of the nation. And to me, that's the nature of, I think, how we need to be thinking about all of these things that are branded, you know, difficult histories, complicated histories, contested histories, is that we've only been telling one part of the story up until now. What we need to do is to widen the frame and tell the whole story. 
So Mary Stopes and the development of birth control, it isn't the only example by any means of racist practices and research in the history of women's healthcare. Um, many of us, for example, would have had experience of a speculum um, and some might have heard of the Sims speculum, um, but we might not know about it. So James Marion Sims, who was an American, is known as one of the fathers of gynaecology. But parts of his research involved deeply unethical, distressing practices. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, yeah, so brace yourselves, this one. I mean, any woman who has ever had a speculum inserted will know that it was probably something that was designed by a man. But the story of James Marion Sims is, is a particularly horrific one. In addition to designing the speculum, he also came up with a technique for treating I'm going to end up mispronouncing this, so apologies, but I think it's, it's vesica vaginal fistula. Sounded right. Oh, yeah, so long as it sounds right, I suppose we're close enough. <laughs> um, so this is, a, this is a condition that's caused during childbirth, which is um, it's essentially a squishing of the tissues. The baby's head, when pushing out of the vaginal canal, causes the tissues to be squashed, and that can cause degeneration or disintegration of the tissue between the, the vagina and the urethral wall, which means that women aren't able to control the passage of their urine and sometimes also the passage of faecal matter as well. So just from that description, it's a horrific thing to happen. Mm. Um, in, in some ways, it's a good thing that he came up with a way of treating it. But the way that he came up with treating it was by conducting experiments on enslaved black women. And these were women who were enslaved on his own estates. They were women who were, were lent to him by neighbouring estates as well. Some of the names that come down to us are Betsy and Anarka. And the story of Anarka is really quite horrific because she had multiple procedures performed on her. All of this was done without anaesthesia. And I think the important thing to point out here is that these women were enslaved women, which means that they want a condition of being enslaved is that you are not able to consent to the things that are happening to you. So uh, I think... And, you know, Sims isn't alone either. There's much of the history of medical advancement that is built really on a pile of the bodies of black people. So, yeah, this is the nature of how some of these medical advances have happened. And mm. I think it's important that people know these stories, that they say these women's names, that they, they know who they are, because they paid a really, really horrendous price in order for other women and future women to be able to live healthily and safely. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's interesting that these kinds of histories are not just in our museums or in our statues in the streets, for example, like we've seen this year, but they're in, in medicine and healthcare, they're in the equipment and the treatments that we receive today. Entirely. And we need to think as well about, you know, what does that mean for how women's bodies are perceived in medicine? You know, the course of the 20th century is, you know, a series of differing attitudes to whose data is collected. And it goes from being almost entirely male to sometimes being almost entirely female. And then women are completely left out again. Mm. You know, Caroline Criado Perez has written about this in her book, Invisible Women, which is that, you know, the, the medical standard is the male body. And, you know, I used to curate a pathology collection. And when I was looking at that, the, the condition of being female is essentially pathologized. Things like pregnancy are, are considered medically to be things that go wrong with the body. So we've, we've, you know, we've talked about eugenics and we've talked about historical sexism there as well. So how valid for you is this argument that you hear a lot that some of these people were just simply products of their time? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this can be this could be quite triggering for, for people like me who are um, who are historians of eugenics, because 
I think sometimes that phrase and that expression is used to shut down an argument, which is the argument that I'm making, which is that this is the whole of the picture of history. These are aspects of these individuals from history and we need to look at the whole story. So when someone says, oh, they were a product of their time, in a way, to me, that sounds like shutting down the discussion of, well, we're not allowed to talk about the bad bits. Mm, it's dismissive. Exactly. But also, as an argument in and of itself, if I'm going to give that person credit for, for using that phrase as a means of not shutting me down, it doesn't really hold water as an argument in itself. Because if it were the case, I don't think it's, the, it's that we suddenly sort of magically wake up in the modern era and suddenly decide to be not racist, not sexist. The reason why we hold those attitudes today is because of generations of activists, generations of intellectuals who have held contrary views to the mainstream, to the patriarchal mainstream. And it's their work and their sacrifice and their activism that we hold our positions on today. And, you know, if we're thinking about John Marion Sims and, and the enslaved women that he practiced on... If you argue everyone was a racist back in the day, everyone believed in slavery back in the day, go and talk to those black women and see whether they agree with the idea of slavery. So that is another real problem with the argument of everyone was back in the day. I think the definition of everyone in that particular argument tends to be very limited. Sabadra Das. Thanks for listening to me, Francis Reed, and all my guests on the Past Caring podcast from the RCN Library and Archive, produced by Natalie Steed. In episode three, we're delving into the world of public health nursing. I'll be talking to nurses and historians about why public health nursing is so important to our daily lives. And we'll take a look at vaccinations now during COVID-19, as well as a historical view. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find us at rcn.org.uk slash what's on.